Chapter Fifteen of The Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Donna Stewart, Seattle, Washington. The Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate by Eliza P. Donner Houghton. Chapter 15 Simon Murphy, Francis, Georgia, and I, taken from the lake cabins by the third relief, no food to leave, crossing the snow, remnant of the second relief overtaken, out of the snow, incidents of the journey, Johnson's Ranch, the Sinclair home, Sutter's Fort. When we left the lake cabin, we still wore the clothing we had on when we came from our tent with Messrs. Cady and Stone. Georgia and I were clad in quilted petticoats, linsey dresses, woolen stockings, and well-worn shoes. Our cloaks were of a twilled material, garnet, with a white thread interwoven, and we had knitted hoods to match. Frances's clothing was as warm. Instead of a cloak, however, she wore a shawl, and her hood was blue. Her shoes had been eaten by our starving dog before he disappeared, and as all others were buried out of reach, Mother had substituted a pair of her own in their stead. Mr. Foster took charge of Simon Murphy, his wife's brother, and Messrs. Eddie and Miller carried Georgia and me. Mr. Eddie always called Georgia my girl, and she found great favor in his eyes, because in size and looks she reminded him of his little daughter who had perished in that storm-bound camp. Our first stop was on the mountainside overlooking the lake, where we were given a light meal of bread and meat and a drink of water. When we reached the head of the lake, we overtook Nicholas Clark and John Baptiste, who had deserted father in his tent, and were hurrying toward the settlement. Our coming was a surprise to them, yet they were glad to join our party. After our evening allowance of food, we were stowed snugly between blankets in a snow trench near the summit of the Sierras, but were so hungry that we could hardly get to sleep even after being told that more food would do us harm. Early next morning we were again on the trail. I could not walk at all, and Georgia only a short distance at a time. So treacherous was the way that our rescuers often stumbled into unseen pits, struggled among snowdrifts, and climbed icy ridges where to slip or fall might mean death in the yawning depth below. Near the close of this most trying day, Hiram M. Miller put me down, saying wearily, I am tired of carrying you. If you will walk to that dark thing on the mountainside ahead of us, you shall have a nice lump of loaf sugar with your supper. My position in the blanket had been so cramped that my limbs were stiff and the jostling of the march had made my body ache. I looked toward the object to which he pointed. It seemed a long way off, yet I wanted the sugar so much that I agreed to walk. The wind was sharp. I shivered and at times could hardly lift my feet. Often I stumbled and would have fallen had he not held my hand tightly as he half-led, half-drew me onward. I did my part, however, in glad expectation of the promised bit of sweetness. The sun had set before we reached our landmark, which was a felled and blackened tree selected to furnish fuel for our night fire. When we children were given our evening allowance of food, 
I asked for my lump of sugar and cried bitterly on being harshly told there was none for me. Too disappointed and fretted to care for anything else, I sobbed myself to sleep. Nor did I waken happy next morning. I had not forgotten the broken promise and was lonesome for mother. When Mr. Miller told me that I should walk that day as far as Francis and Georgia did, I refused to go forward and cried to go back. The result was that he used rough means before I promised to be good and do as he commanded. His act made my sister Frances rush to my defense, and also touched a chord in the fatherly natures of the other two men, who summarily brought about a more comfortable state of affairs. When we proceeded on our journey, I was again carried by Mr. Miller in a blanket on his back, as young children are carried by Indians on long journeys. My head above the blanket folds bobbed uncomfortably at every lurch. The trail led up and down and around snow peaks and under overhanging banks that seemed ready to give way and crush us. At one turn our rescuers stopped, picked up a bundle, and carefully noted the fresh human footprints in the snow, which indicated that a number of persons were moving in advance. By our fire that night, Mr. Eddy opened the bundle that we found upon the snow, and to the surprise of all, Frances at once recognized in it the three silk dresses, silver spoons, small keepsakes, and articles of children's clothing which Mother had entrusted to the care of Messrs. Cady and Stone. The spoons and smaller articles were now stowed away in the pockets of our rescuers for safe keeping on the journey and while we little girls dressed ourselves in the fresh underwear and watched our discarded garments disappear in the fire, the dresses which mother had planned should come to us later in life were remodeled for immediate use. Mr. Thompson pulled out the same sharp pocket knife, coarse black thread, and big-eyed needle which he had used the previous evening while making Francis a pair of moccasins out of his own gauntlet gloves. With the help of Mr. Eddy, he then ripped out the sleeves, cut off the waists about an inch above the skirt gathers, cut slits in the skirts for armholes, and tacked in the sleeves. Then, with mother's wish in mind, they put the dove-colored silk on Frances, the light brown on Georgia, and the dark coffee brown on me. Pleats and laps in the skirt bands were necessary to fit them to our necks. Strings were tied around our waists, and the skirts tacked up until they were of walking length. These ample robes served for cloaks as well as dresses, for we could easily draw our hands back through the sleeves and keep our arms warm beneath the folds. Thus comfortably clad, we began another day's journey. Before noon we overtook and passed Messrs. Oakley, Stone, and Stark, having in charge the following refugees from starved camp. Mr. and Mrs. Patrick Breen and their five children, Mary Donner, Jonathan Graves, Nancy Graves, and Baby Graves. Messrs. Oakley and Stone were in advance, the former carrying Mary Donner over his shoulder and the latter Baby Graves in his arms. Great-hearted John Stark had the care of all the rest. He was broad-shouldered and powerful, and would stride ahead with two weaklings at a time, deposit them on the trail, and go back for others who could not keep up. These were the remnant of the hopeful seventeen who had started out on the 3rd of March with the second relief, and with whom mother had hoped we children would cross the mountains. 
It was after dark when our own little party encamped at the crossing of the Yuba River. The following morning, Lieutenant Woodworth and attendants were found nearby. He commended the work done by the Third Relief, yet, to Mr. Eddy's dismay, he declared that he would not go to the rescue of those who were still in the mountains, because the warmer weather was melting the snow so rapidly that the lives of his men would be endangered should he attempt to lead them up the trail which we had just followed down. He gave our party rations, and said he would at once proceed to Johnson's ranch, and from there send to Mule Springs the requisite number of horses to carry to the settlement the persons now on the trail. Our party did not resume travel until ten o'clock that morning. Nevertheless, we crossed the snow line and made our next camp at Mule Springs. There we caught the first breath of springtide, touched the warm, dry earth, and saw green fields far beyond the foot of that cold, cruel mountain range. Our rescuers exclaimed joyfully, "'Thank God we are at last out of the snow, and you shall soon see Elitha and Liana, and have all you want to eat.' Our allowance of food had been gradually increased, and our improved condition bore evidence of the good care and kind treatment we had received. We remained several days at Mule Springs, and were comparatively happy, until the arrival of the unfortunates from starved camp, who stretched forth their gaunt hands and piteously begged for food which would have caused death had it been given to them in sufficient quantities to satisfy their cravings. When I went among them, I found my little cousin Mary sitting on a blanket near Mr. Oakley, who had carried her thither, and who was gently trying to engage her thoughts. Her wan face was wet with tears, and her hands were clasped around her knee as she rocked from side to side in great pain. A large woolen stocking covered her swollen leg and frozen foot, which had become numb and fallen into the fire one night at starved camp, and been badly maimed before she awakened to feel the pain. I wanted to speak to her, but when I saw how lonesome and ill she looked, something like pain choked off my words. Her brother Isaac had died at that awful camp, and she herself would not have lived had Mr. Oakley not been so good to her. He was now comforting her with the assurance that he would have the foot cared for by a doctor as soon as they should reach the settlement, and she, believing him, was trying to be brave and patient. We all resumed travel on horseback and reached Johnson's Ranch at about the same hour in the day. As we approached, the little colony of emigrants which had settled in the neighborhood the previous autumn crowded in and about the two-roomed adobe house which Mr. Johnson had kindly set apart as a stopping place for the several relief parties on their way to and from the mountains. All were anxious to see the sufferers for whose rescue they had helped to provide. Survivors of the forlorn hope and of the first relief were also there awaiting the arrival of their expected loved ones. There Simon Murphy, who came with us, met his sisters and brother. Mary Graves took from the arms of Charles Stone her slowly dying baby sister. She received from the hands of John Stark her brother Jonathan and her sister Nancy, and heard of the death of her mother and of her brother Franklin at Starved Camp. That house of welcome became a house of mourning when Messrs. Eddy and Foster repeated the names of those who had perished in the snows. The scenes were so heart-rending that I slipped out of doors and sat in the sunshine waiting for Francis and Georgia, 
and thinking of her who had entrusted us to the care of God. Before our short stay at the Johnson Ranch ended, we little girls had a peculiar experience. While standing in a doorway, the door closed with a bang upon two of my fingers. My piercing cry brought several persons to the spot, and one among them sat down and soothed me in a motherly way. After I was myself again, she examined the dress into which Messrs. Thompson and Eddie had stitched so much goodwill, and she said, "'Let me take off this clumsy thing and give you a little blue dress with white flowers on it.' She made the change, and after she had fastened it in the back, she got a needle and white thread and bade me stand closer to her so that she might sew up the tear which exposed my knees.' she asked why i looked so hard at her sewing and i replied my mother always makes little stitches when she sews my dresses no amount of pulling down of the sleeves or straightening out of the skirt could conceal the fact that i was too large for the garment as i was leaving her i heard her say to a companion that is just as good for her and this will make two for my little girl Later in the day, Francis and Georgia parted with their silks and looked as forlorn as I in calico substitutes. Oh, the balm and beauty of that early morning when Messrs. Eddie, Thompson, and Miller took us on horseback down the Sacramento Valley. Under the leafy trees and over the budding blossoms we rode. Not rapidly, but steadily, we neared our journey's end. Toward night, when the birds had stopped their singing and were hiding themselves among bush and bough, we reached the home of Mr. and Mrs. John Sinclair on the American River, thirty-five miles from Johnson's Ranch and only two and a half from Sutter's Fort. That hospitable house was overcrowded with earlier arrivals, but as it was too late for us to cross the river, sympathetic Mrs. Sinclair said that she would find a place for us. Having no bed to offer, she loosened the rag carpet from one corner of the room, had fresh straw put on the floor, and after supper tucked us away on it, drawing the carpet over us in place of quilts. We had bread and milk for supper that night, and the same good food next day. In the afternoon we were taken across the river in an Indian canoe. Then we followed the winding path through the tools to Sutter's Fort, where we were given over to our half-sisters by those heroic men who had kept their pledge to our mother and saved our lives. End of chapter 15 Recorded by Donna Stewart, Seattle, Washington